Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. I want to start with the only way this podcast grows is if our listeners help out, okay? Uh, The way to do that is to follow, share, and review the show. So if you take something positive or educational out of one of the episodes, please pass it along. On today's episode, I have another great guest. I have Dr. Elizabeth Wick. Dr. Wick is a fellowship-trained facial plastic surgeon. She has recently co-authored a book on rhinoplasty and lip augmentation. Dr. Wick practices in St. Louis at Rhinar Plastic Surgery, which is a very well-known plastic surgery clinic here in the St. Louis area. So thanks for being on the show, Dr. Wick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a fan, so I appreciate being here. <laughs> so let's just start with like, what do you specialize in? What procedures? So my practice is largely at this point, hair restoration. I have a robust hair clinic, rhinoplasty, and then a bunch of different parts of kind of facial rejuvenation. And in my male clinic, that's largely like chin augmentation, neck lifting, and face lifting. So that's kind of the main breakdown. But the largest two are hair and rhinoplasty. So when somebody's coming in to see you, like what's the most requested procedure a man has and what's the most requested procedure a female has? The most requested from men at this point is a hair transplant, hair restoration. For women, it's probably rhinoplasty. So let's talk about the hair restoration a little bit. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier and you've come and talk uh, at our clinics and educated our staff on some of this topic. Is the hair transplants like a, a taboo topic for men to talk about? Or do you feel like they're pretty open whenever they come to see you? Or how do they even get to you in the first place? You know, classically, for men, anything is taboo. In the past, it's been like that. They will often come in through their female family members, whether it's a wife that I've done a procedure on or their mom that's like, I think my son will really benefit from this. He's been really kind of concerned about this. But I do see that changing. I think we've seen that on a national level that that kind of classic taboo with men is at least somewhat lifting after the COVID kind of rebound. And I'm seeing more and more patients say, I saw my friend who saw you for some preclinical or pre-surgical hair transformation or transplants or hair loss treatments. And that's kind of the word of mouth and somewhat of my social media is kind of getting the word out there. But that's kind of been the main way that men are coming in. And, you know, the idea is that they're seeing each other on social media. They're seeing themselves more through a virtual work environment. So they're kind of starting to understand the need to kind of keep themselves up or the want to do that more and more. And so I'm seeing that. But it's still the, the bulk of my practice is still there's that taboo that's kind of behind anything cosmetic. So you mentioned COVID. Did COVID have an impact on people's hair, male and female? It definitely did. So there's a combination, we believe, that actually in 2020, hair loss was the number one Googled search term. And we believe that it's a combination of stress and the actual impact of the virus. There's something called telogen effluvian that can cause your hair to fall out after stress and the combination of that and some medical issues. And so the virus is impact itself did cause some hair loss. And we're starting to see some improvements from that, but definitely had an impact on patients. 
So what can men do to maintain the health of their hair, you know, prior to coming to see you? Are there supplements they can take? Is there certain shampoos that they can use? What are the things that men are typically doing wrong? Because, you know, obviously being married to one, it's like they have one thing in the shower and it's the, you know, this all-in-one hair shampoo and conditioner. And I have like 65 bottles of different things that I use. Some of it is what not to do. So many guys that I see will wear a hat like 24-7. And the problem with that is it doesn't allow for exfoliation. And so whether it's at your salon or we offer something called Caraviv that's a deep exfoliation that adds an exfoliation to some kind of topical growth factors, that's great. And I've seen some incredible results as far as just overall hair health. That's if you're just a, a patient that guy that's just trying to maximize your hair kind of health. The shampoo, in my experience, is if I really like the Nutrafol line because I think it adds to that kind of just feeling soft and healthy. But I feel like if you're getting something that's cleaning the scalp and it's really doing a good job with that and you like the aesthetic after that, at least you're doing the right thing from that standpoint. You know, after you start to notice that familial hair loss, then you probably want to do some other things for hair topicals. But for the general man out there that's just trying to improve his scalp health, you know, exfoliation, cleaning the scalp regularly with something that really gets it clean is really the mainstay of hair health and preventing any hair loss. So we know men hate to go to the doctor. So if they're to go buy a topical, say they're starting to lose their hair, they stroll into a Walgreens and they pick up a Rogaine. Is that good, bad, indifferent? Tell us what you would recommend there. That's a really great question. So in general, again, I applaud anybody that's doing something. So if you're doing something that you can continue with, then I like it. The biggest problem with Rogaine is not that it doesn't work it's that people don't use it because it's either foamy or sticky or they just don't like it for whatever reason. They're in the over-the-counter Rogaine. There is a component to it that some people are allergic to, so it's itchy. But at the same time, to ask that question, if you don't want to come into the doctor's office, there are some online options that are not horribly priced, but it's always important to remember that you pay for what you get. So there's a hymns and a hers, and they will charge you a certain amount of money. But most of the time, the percentage of what you're getting is not as high as it should be. And maybe you're not getting all of the ingredients that you should get to maximize your outcome. But those are certain, it's probably better than the over-counter Rogaine if you're having an allergic reaction or you don't like the feel. Trying, at least trying, instead of giving up, trying a hymns is a, ne- is a good next option. So are you referring to a topical finasteride or a topical minoxidil? So Rogaine is a topical minoxidil. They come in two different strengths, 2.5 or 5 over the counter, and it has a glycerol component to it that some people are allergic to, but that's the only component in that. If for some reason it's not doing enough for you and you are using it every day, the other important thing to that is that you want to be having it on your head for 8 to 10 hours. I find that people don't fully understand that or haven't been educated. They put it on their head for two hours and they're hoping for an improvement, and the problem is that that's just not long enough. So if you're getting it on your head long enough but you just hate the feel or it's starting to give you an allergic reaction, instead of giving up, if you're just not going to come to the doctor's office, I'd love to see you at that point, but the next best option would be to find some way of getting a topical that doesn't isn't doesn't cause an allergy for you and maybe it includes another component which would as you were saying finasteride and dutasteride are two additives that are great at stopping the transfer of your testosterone into the heavy hitter for hair loss something called DHT and so finasteride and dutasteride are great topical options that they've recently had a good amount of science to show that they work well topically 
you don't have to take them orally, but I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Those are things that you would need to kind of come and see somebody, whether it's at Victory Men's Health or in my clinic. But the next best option would be something like HIMS or HERS, which is an online, you can go and buy something that it may have a slightly better compounding, but would still be getting you an option for something that will help prevent and reduce and slow hair loss. Okay, so what about the females? Because I know, you know, they have hair thinning as well and had the impact of COVID. And you see a lot of women wearing extensions now. Uh, Do those damage the hair or can those be our majority of estheticians placing those properly now where you don't see hair loss? Expand upon that a little bit. I love that question. So I love it because the classic answer is that Oh, extensions cause traction alopecia, which is alopecia is hair loss for anybody that isn't familiar with that. So traction on hair loss, basically you're slowly plucking the hair. And if you keep doing that over time, it can lead to scarring hair loss. And so the classic answer is that you want to avoid those. But what I'm seeing more and more is that salons are doing a better job of placing those. And what I mean by that is I had a recent patient that really did an awesome job on medical management. She's a female, her numerous, she's actually referred her sister to me and she's had a great response to a combination of medical treatment, kind of the central area where you, you see female hair pattern hair loss and her salon person was able to kind of reduce not only the number of extensions, but bring them down further down here. So they're not in the area where she's actively having hair loss. And I feel like I'm fine with that because the double side of that or the other side of that is that it's a long process to regrow your hair and and it's an emotional problem for women and men. And if you have a tool that makes you feel in the moment better and it can be applied appropriately and conservatively, I support that for my female patients because I just think there's really to get where they want to go in any of, you know, near future. I just think it's necessary. You just have to pick somebody that you really respect and has been doing it. But I think they I've been seeing more and more patients having those extensions done well, to be honest. So what about the I think it's called the microblading and the eyelash extensions because you also do transplants there I read. So doing the lash extensions uh, damage your lashes over time or are those also done relatively well now and safe. I see them done relatively well. I don't think that there's any real reason to not. The only real comparison is that if you, for some reason, just don't grow lashes, then you're not going to be able to get those lash extensions on because they are extensions from what you already have. And the other aspect is that they require upkeep. If you're doing lash transplants, you're growing your your hair. And so the main upkeep is that you have to trim them and shape them, but you're not having to go back routinely to have them treated. But I see the patients in, in salons are doing a great job with that. As far as I feel slightly different about microblading because that is so salon dependent. What I mean by that is, and I have a, a couple places I really like that they do a really, really good job, but I've also seen some patients where what it ends up looking like is basically a tattoo in the area of the brow. And that is... A, somewhat challenging facial aesthetic as far as the brow shape, height, it changes with social norms. We're looking at the current social kind of ideal is a thicker brow. And so if you have somebody microblading or tattooing your brow um, and you've done it for a long time and they start to look less like hairs and they look more obvious, in my opinion, that's less ideal than if you have a brow transplant. This is a brow for life. You know, the, those, we take the hair from the side of the head or the back of the head to mimic those thin hairs. We place them individually, you know, in 400 to 600 locations. It looks extremely natural and it's, and it's hair for life. So if you're somebody that for whatever reason, whether it's you were plucking when you were, you overplucked when you were younger, you have thyroid issues that are now stabilized 
or your kind of social ideal has changed for what you're looking for in your brow and you're younger, then the kind of there's the advantage of doing the brow transplant is that it's a one and done and you're not having to keep on going back and having that maintained. And if you're in an area where you don't feel like you're finding a place where they're able to make it look natural, then the brow is is your hair. It looks natural. So are you using the hair from your head to do the eyelash transplants as well? Same thing. You know, there's this thing about donor capacity and donor, basically where the hair is coming from is what the hair will grow like. So we basically tailor where we're sent, where we're going to be placing the hair is where, how we decide where we're going to take it from. And so for brows, you notice they're thinner. They're always single hairs and same thing with lashes. So we always take them from the side because you're going to have slightly finer hair here and you're going to have slightly finer hair at the bottom of your neck. But yeah, those are individually placed hairs as well. So why do women lose hair? That's a great question. Some we don't fully understand. So most of my patients that I see for female hair loss is a combination of what we call female pattern hair loss and chronic telogen effluvian. And the one that we're, we're starting to understand that, that that female pattern hair loss, which is kind of the same as androgenetic or genetic hormonal hair loss in men, we're now understanding that that's probably a higher percentage of patients than we used to think. And the reason we were confused about that is that Number one, they don't, they don't lose hair in the same kind of places, in the same pattern, but they also don't, it's not as dependent on this, what we call DHT, which is a kind of a byproduct of testosterone. And because of that, we're, we think more that it has to do with the, the number of cycles that they're going through and some of the other growth factor components. And so at this point, you know, the science is still behind the practice of it. We don't fully know why each woman, you know, specifically loses their hair, but we do know that minoxidil works extremely well. And we do have some genetic testing in our office and in some offices use to kind of better understand whether dutasteride, finasteride, which are those more classic medications that work for male pattern baldness, in some women those also work as well. We do see this more kind of around the perimenopausal age, and I see a lot of women that come in 10 years after they've gone through menopause, and they say, oh, I started to lose my hair. So for those women, when I hear that, and I look at their hair, and they have fine hair, and the volume is lost, I just from a clinical and experience kind of place, I kind of consider them a little bit more like male pattern baldness and that I usually want to get them a combination of minoxidil. But the complete answer of why women lose their hair it's probably somewhat of a hormonal imbalance, a relative change as they go through menopause. That's part of it. And then and then there's chronic telogen effluvian. And what that is, is that's related more to the overall metabolic kind of status of these women as they get older. So I always do labs on, on my female patients. And that's kind of where I start that process. But it's very different for each woman. And And then to kind of make this answer even longer... If I start with the kind of the things that usually work for those patients and it's just not getting me where I want them to go, I do have something called a trico test that is a genomic study and it looks at number of the genomic kind of the best known or best understood genetic causes for hair loss in men and women, but it's very useful in my female patients that just don't seem to be responding. And then that gives us a little bit of a greater picture toward what are other things we can add to a topical or oral medication to help with supplements and to help with just kind of fully supporting the hair regrowth. I want to talk a little bit about uh, using PRP for hair growth. And you see a lot of different places offering this. 
med spas and chiropractic clinics and even men's health clinics, not us. I call this chasing the shiny object. It actually, it, it bothers me because not all PRP is created equal. And I really feel like when it comes to the hair loss, it can, it can seem a little bit like a money grab to me and it has to really be done right. So maybe if you could just take a minute, I mean, this is what you specialize in to explain, you know, the difference in your PRP and what somebody might get somewhere else or questions people need to be asking to make sure they're really going somewhere that knows what they're doing. That's a great comment. It's like you took the words right out of my mouth. And I too am bothered by this understanding that it's all, or people misunderstand that it's, they think it's all created equal. PRP here is the same in another place. But it, number one, it really should be provided by an expert and somebody that is dedicated to hair restoration because it, it can really help hair loss in the right person, the right age, and done right timing and the right technique. And so basically to explain, just to kind of back off, kind of take a step back a little bit. So platelet-rich plasma is kind of the classic form. We've transferred into something called platelet-rich fibrin matrix, which has some benefits as well compared to kind of classic PRP. But just sticking to the answer of PRP is something that really the science has shown is really not going to do anything for you in one treatment. And you'll see even more med spas offering it as you go. And it's just not going to do for you what you want, especially for the cost. It really should be done once a month for at least three months. And I've gotten to the point where I really recommend it for four months in a row. And then it should be understood as a maintenance hair. It's not a single treatment. It's not even two treatments and then you're done. This is something that you're committing almost, I hate to say it, but but people that have a piece that have like, that have maintenance of a piece through their lifetime, you know, PRP is probably a little less expensive than that, but it's a maintenance treatment that really should be four times every four to six weeks, see how you respond at that point, and then decide if you want to do two more in the next two months or transfer into what we call maintenance. And maintenance is done on average around every four months, the same treatment, but it's done every four months. And and what that will, it'll extend your improvements. And so the other thing is, you know, I've seen people come in and they've said they've had like a derma roller, something like that, where they put the PRP on this scalp and then they derma roll it in. So the problem with that, I'm probably not even using the right term. The problem with that is that there's a very specific depth that you need to get these growth factors into and kind of making sure that the system that you're using is processing it appropriately to get the highest amount of platelet concentration, because that's where you're going to find those appropriate and, and growth factors that help rejuvenate that hair, help move it from a resting phase into a growth phase, and will also affect the length of time that those growth factors are in the position near the, what we call the bulb of the hair, where it has those stem cells. So the PRP itself, you want to inject into about 1.81 to 2 millimeters into the scalp. And that's just not going to happen with any kind of rolling mechanism on top of the head. And it's surprising how many times I see that. And you're just not going to, I liked, I saw a patient recently who wanted to go treatment by treatment. And the problem with that is that he wanted to see if he was happy after two treatments. And I tell patients that for my young patients and some of my early menopause women, female patients that are going through those relatively recent hormonal changes those patients are going to do the best and they're still probably somewhere between this literature would say, you know, say a 25 to 35% improvement in their growth, which is significant for hair loss. That's going to be their total improvement over three to four treatments, but it's, it's synergistic, meaning it's, 
at two treatments, you're not halfway there. You know, you're maybe like 8% improvement. And so somebody in that position, they're probably not seeing a huge improvement in the feel of their thickness, luster of their hair yet. And so if you stop at two, then ultimately you've spent, you know, thousands of dollars, at least over a thousand, even if you're at a med spa, and you're not seeing anything, and you're going to leave disappointed, and you're going to spread this word that it doesn't work. And reality is, it does, it, you know, three out of four women, it works. But you just, you have to be at a place that tells you the right things, sets your expectations, and technically is doing it appropriately, and has a system that has the highest concentration of those platelets. And and to come back to kind of, I was going on a left kind of curve there, so we do platelet-rich fiber matrix, and I'll just put a small plug. And the reason for that is that there's a less inflammatory cells, so patients really tolerate, many patients tolerate it with minimal to no lidocaine. I still provide lidocaine or numbing medication just because I want my patients to have as relaxed an experience as possible, but they really tolerate it really well. There's less swelling. And then most importantly, the fiber matrix kind of sets it up in the kind of a gel in the perfect depth of the scalp. And instead of being in that region to kind of stimulate those stem cells for a couple of days. The fiber matrix allows it to kind of sit on the order of like weeks. So that's a nice added benefit as well. But I'm happy that you asked about that because it is very hard to, there's just a lot of noise out there about PRP and there's very little explaining that they're not all created equally. Well, you know, we do PRP here and the rep is like, well, now you should do hair transplants because you already have the kit. I'm like, we're not doing hair restoration. Like that is the wrong head that we work on. Like we are not interested in doing it, but you know, they can reel you in because you've already made the investment into the PRP kits and the device and the education. So now they think, you know, they're, they're just looking to sell more kits and we've uh, been pretty adamant that that's out of our scope and that's not something our providers are going to be doing. But I have a lot of other questions for you on other, you know, plastic surgery related topics. I want to ask you about uh, facial fillers and do they impact facelifts and kind of like, are there some things that you see people doing with face fillers that are incorrect and they have, they have a long-term consequences on their face? So in general, fillers, and I might be repeating some things here as we talk, but I'll try to minimize that. So fillers are for early rejuvenation. And the biggest impact on a facelift is more in those patients that you see where they're getting fillers for longer than they should. And there's a lot of reasons that that happens. There's cost, there's fear of surgical procedures, there's providers that may not be as familiar with the outcomes of surgery and the indications for surgery. But what ends up happening, if somebody continues to get fillers past their appropriate kind of soft tissue improvement, kind of that early rejuvenation. Number one, they probably just see too many fillers for too long. And I think that the studies around fillers are not long enough to prove the effect they have on lymphatic system and the overall kind of tissue when somebody's been doing them for five to 10 years. They just aren't there. And I think from an anecdotal standpoint with providers, we all believe that while they're in general temporary, if you overdo them, they do change the kind of the soft tissue structure, the lymphatic system does somewhat evolve. 
I don't think it's to the point where we should be creating like fear from patients that if they get filler early on and they're with a patient, a, a provider that they trust, that's an expert in facial rejuvenation and has all the tools in the toolbox to kind of guide them into when the net, when the fillers have reached their limit. I don't think there should be fear of that because I think there's a lot of really great option, uh, great reasons to use fillers early on. I think the biggest thing is just being with somebody that you trust that, you know, when you ask, am I beyond my filler stage? They'll be honest with you and, and will be able to either refer you to somebody that they're confident about and really think will take great care of you, or they themselves are somebody that provides those treatments. The only thing I will say in addition to that, that, you know, it's really only a problem when somebody's been doing it for 10 years at, you know, a significant frequency that you start to see some of that tissue kind of change in the mid face, kind of between my two fingers here. The other issue I'll, I will say is I will. Often, if somebody is, if I wonder whether they've had that or if they've had filler in the last year in the area of kind of in this region, I will dissolve their filler. I will just use a lot of dissolver to try to get into those areas two weeks before surgery. The reason for that is that it, it helps reduce the distortion on the structures, the deep plane structures. The modern kind of facelift is called a deep plane facelift. Um, it requires a little bit more surgeon expertise, but it requires longer lasting, more natural results. And you really want to have a clear zone between kind of where the muscle layer is that you're trying to lift from and where that soft tissue kind of fatty layer is. And the fillers can sometimes distort that. And so I will, and it also isn't great for blood supply after surgery. Like if you've just had it before surgery, it's not ideal. So I will dissolve that and then give them time to kind of resettle out, if you will, and before any kind of procedure. But those are, I don't think patients should be afraid of fillers for the concern that in 10 years they may be interested in facelift. I just think that they should really be discerning in the people that they go to for their fillers and just make sure that they trust them that when it's time to move on, it's time to move on. Well, I watched a facelift on Instagram and when she pulled back, she's like, oh, and right here is the patient's filler. And it was like this upper cheek area. And I was like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I was like terrified. I, was, I haven't had fillers yet, but I've been considering it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, it scared me. It's scary. <laughs> no, but that's why I dissolve it because you just, I think the other thing is it's very hard. The other reason I do it two weeks prior, even though I feel confident about what I'm diagnosing and that, you know, the plan is great. If you have a lot of filler in there, it can be very difficult to appropriately create a plan, diagnose where you're, it's just like any other medical thing. When you come in to see me, there's a diagnosis of kind of where aging has occurred. Everybody's different and how to, it's not about lifting one thing. It's about creating a whole facial balance that makes you look younger, more chiseled or, you know, whatever the goals for you are. But most of the time, the goal is to look younger, more vibrant. And, and if you have filler to that extent that recently, then it's harder to diagnose, like, does this patient really need some fat transfer to replace that filler for a lifelong result instead of having this repeat filler? But I agree. And it's actually interesting. I did a, I did a, a nose procedure on somebody that had been getting nasal filler. And that was, I should have taken a video on Instagram about it. I thought of it right after. But um, yeah, there was like filler coming out of the nose. And I had seen that before. It tends to, yeah. So that, I think the important thing is, Yes, the studies, it's a great option for patients, but we just have to be comfortable that at some point that party is going to end and you got to kind of move on and do it safely with somebody that you trust. 
Okay, so let's talk about like the chicken neck and the little uh, neck lift as we age. And I want to talk about it also with cool sculpting, because that's another device that you see a lot of places have an offering. And I want a plastic surgeon's perspective, because I did have a plastic surgeon tell me, you know, he looked at my chin or my neck here. And he's like, don't ever let somebody cool sculpt that because that you do not have fat there. And if you ever decide to get a facelift or neck lift, it will impact uh, your results. So I'm kind of curious what you see there and uh, how you know if cool sculpting even is a good option for somebody if they're looking to tighten this area around the chin neck area. Oh, man. I don't want to, and I love to use the word chicken because I was like, people are going to hate me when I use the term (laughs) goblet. So in general, I, because I'm so comfortable with the structure of the neck and I'm so comfortable with even liposuction for early rejuvenation, I have actually never recommended cool sculpting for underneath the chin. And part of that is because, you know, it's been more readily used like in the abdomen and in the legs. And anytime you introduce a new minimally invasive modality into a patient, you know, you have to think, is that going to create fibrosis? Is that going to create scarring that's going to be harder to manage those structures? So probably more to the point of your question is, you know, if there's fat underneath the chin and that's the patient's concern, then there's like a whole toolbox over here that I will talk to them about and kind of what can work for them. If it's skin, kind of what I think, I mean, you're beautiful, but probably more what you're talking about, then it's just a different direction of skin tightening procedures for early patients. If that's really the appropriate thing or a simple, you know, tuck up neck lift for somebody that's younger, or do I pair that with liposuction? So I think the answer to the question is in the chin, I have not personally recommended that because I'm so comfortable with other options that are more predictable to me. But in general, if this is something that a patient is really looking and they really want this fat to be treated, the kind of the options that exist are something called Kybella, cool sculpting, liposuction, and sometimes neck lifting, where they can do more directed removal of that fat. And in my experience, the indications for a cool sculpting procedure or Kybella are limited because I have seen the scarring that occurs with Kybella, and it's very hard to treat later. It just like scars up and fibrosis everything. You know, because I've I've yet not seen anybody post cool sculpting in that area. I can't speak to that as I just don't. I haven't recommended that. What I can say that is when it's in the body, anecdotally, like so, if you have say you have cool sculpting to the abdomen, you know, there's a very rare form. It's less than one percent that you can have paroxysmal kind of fat creation. And the treatment for that is liposuction. And my understanding is that when patients go to have that treated with liposuction, it can be more fibrotic. And so that's one of the reasons why, and it can require, you know, for a procedure that you can do under local, most surgeons that are doing that liposuction on the body after the cool sculpting will end up having them be asleep because it is a little bit of a different kind of feel to that fat. It's, It's harder and it's just more dense and But specific to the chin, I wouldn't recommend it because I just have other options that are more predictable to me. And I've heard enough about those rare occasions in the abdomen and the fat being slightly different quality that I just wouldn't want to manage that. Or I just wouldn't want that for my patients in the neck area. Yeah, I did have a plastic surgeon tell me that, that she sees patients that have had several cool sculpting treatments done on their sides or their stomach that it 
can make uh, liposuction for her more challenging than if they had not had it. But back to the chin. So if, if say if it's not fat and it's just tightening, is there really anything non-surgical to do to get that to tighten? I mean, tell me, tell me if there is. I don't like anything there. But what I will say is I've found the summary statement is probably no. I mean, in my hands, no. And that's all I can answer to. There are some lucky patients that if you come in young, the younger you come in in the neck is interesting because part of the rejuvenation that we're kind of relying on is your own ability to create collagen and to heal. And every time anybody heals from an injury, whether it's a technically a facelift is a surgical procedure. So we're relying on the healing process to basically contract and lift this kind of rejuvenating neck, soft tissue, skin envelope up and kind of nice that chiseled kind of line. The younger the patient, the more capacity they're going to have to create collagen and have that nice contracture. And so just like in a neck lift, so the answer is still no for me. I mean, if you have just kind of sagging neck, you know, surgical treatment is probably the best. But if you're younger, you're 35 and under, 40 and really healthy, and your skin looks healthy, then I still consider that. Then you're going to have a really good chance that some other things are going to work for overall neck rejuvenation. There are some skin tightening treatments. I don't love them because they're similar to kind of what we were just talking about. They can change the overall structure of the skin. But if somebody, but they do have their their place in time. And if it's a young patient that just starts to have, I even have them these early things here. Those can be treated with a combination of Botox. Sometimes the necklines can be treated with Sculptra. If it's a discoloration in the skin from sun damage, I would add probably people love the combination of Sculptra to the necklines with a BBL laser series. And there's literally no stigma of having anything done. You do have to come back for some maintenance, but you come in, it's a true lunchtime procedure to have those combinations. But that's different than sagging. Really, the for sagging skin, the best thing is just a really simple, you can hide the incisions behind the ear. It can be a very short procedure if it's just that simple sagging. And I hate to go back on it, but I mean, for some patients, if they're really against surgery. Obviously, we always try to kind of set expectations I don't see this in you, but these early lines here, that's kind of that. There's a muscle called platysma that's very thin underneath. It's starting to kind of relax. Those can be treated with some from Botox. But for the most part, skin laxity underneath the neck in most patients, they're probably going to be pretty underwhelmed with some of those minimally invasive options. So you mentioned Sculptra. Is that, you know, that produces collagen, right? Have you seen anything there of concern for if later in life you want to do a facelift or do you seem like that's a pretty good product? I like Sculptra just for the listeners. Sculptra is usually talked about in similar circles as filler because its goal is to improve soft tissue volume. Its goal is is to improve kind of the rejuvenation, the fullness of the face. Its way of doing that is different. It is a, like she was saying, like Amy was saying, it is a collagen stimulator. And so what ends up happening is you have it applied very similarly. So it's there, you kind of and you'll leave the office feeling like you've had volume replaced. And what happens over the next three to six weeks is that the fluid that the collagen stimulator was kind of dissolved into starts to dissipate and go away. And at the same time, your body's process starts to kind of kickstart and create more collagen and fill in 
those lines. And so it started with some fine lines here as FDA approved. And I believe they just came out, but it's been used off label for quite a while for necklace lines. I love it for necklace lines because um, you don't have that facial movement concern. It just is great at filling in those superficial lines and you layer over that laser kind of treatment. It's really people love it. But the nice thing about Sculptra is, you know, they say it lasts for two years that really depends on your aging process, how healthy you are, how what you're, you know, so it lasts much longer than a regular filler will, how exactly long that is. You know, FDA approval, I can't say longer than two years, but I've seen, I feel like it, it really lasts longer. And the best analogy is like a 401k. So if patients are kind of coming in, the sculpture kind of gives you that longer growth and prevention of kind of loss. And it's nice to kind of add that to the mix for patients. But I don't think, I believe one of the best places for it is in the necklines. So I want to ask about and kind of maybe talk about the importance of your breathing pathways, orthodontics, clinching, some of these things that you see over time, like these enlarged masseters for, you know, the the bottom part of your jaw here, what you see if people sleep on one side of their face a lot, what you see with people that maybe uh, are snorers or mouth breathers, is that changing their their facial structure over time? I think of that in like a three-part question. I'll make sure that I answer all of it. So the biggest one there is the clenchers. So patients that we also call like bruxism, it just depends on what the issue is with their jaw and their teeth and stress level. And so patients that are really clenching down or can generally, they're just born with larger masters, that can start to create more of a kind of a a jawline here. In women, you know, it's kind of fighting the, when you add weight or width to the bottom here, you're kind of going against the current ideal or aesthetic ideal with the kind of the inverted triangle and creating kind of highlights here. If you add weight here, you're kind of adding to the age. And so there are some minimally invasive treatments like Botox, master Botox that I'll do and kind of burst up front. And that can help both. I see a lot of patients that come in and they're clenching and they have headaches and it helps with that. But it also, I always talk to them about kind of facial contouring in that kind of case. And that happens for men as well. I don't get a lot of men that want to get rid of that facial change though, because it can be seen as more masculine to have. I mean, I have jaw implants where patients are trying to get width and kind of a more chiseled kind of angle here. And so, you know, if a patient's in shape and they don't have a lot of extra fat for a man, it's not usually an aesthetic concern. The only time it becomes an issue for men from an aesthetic concern with a clenching is more if they do carry a little bit of extra fat, it kind of just creates more of a round, larger face. For the other things, as far as snoring, you know, that it's like the chicken or the egg, especially in patients of the age that we're talking about. And kids, if they're snoring, it does have some congenital changes, but we're talking more kind of in older patients. And I think the greater concern with somebody that's snoring is, does that kind of ask the question, are they having sleep apnea? And that carries other kind of heart and lung concerns with it. I don't really look at somebody that says that they're snoring and I'm worried that that's changing their facial structure here. It's more that I'm worried, you know, is are they breathing adequately through their nose? Because that could be treated to help breathing issues. And a good one out of three patients are having issues with their nose if they're breathing through their mouth in that kind of way. And then I just want to make sure that they're healthy from a standpoint, if they're concerned with something else aesthetically with me, they all my patients are very healthy patients. So if you're sleeping all the time on one side, it's just like if you're always driving a car, you're going to have more aging on one side of your face. So as we know, you age more on the left side of your face because as drivers in the United States, we get more sun from that side. It's kind of a similar thing with sleeping on one side of your face. You're going to have more pressure. You're going to have... 
I've had men come in that have kind of a vertical line. They don't know where it's coming from. No muscle action is creating that. It's because they're sleeping on one side of the face all the time. So they're having more traction on that side of the face. It's really hard to tell patients what to do, especially if they're married, but they can have facial filler or they can treat that with Sculptra often. If they're having you know, skin laxity, you can consider a facelift, but that's why that's happening if you're sleeping on one side and you're noticing that there's more tissue loss, more aging on that side. It, it is because of the physical components of sleeping repetitively on that side. Do you have like a pillow you recommend? Is there one out there that position should? Oh, I want to get back to you on like a brand. But what I can tell you is silk pillows are great for your skin and great for your hair. I just okay. changed one. From, yeah. And they're, they're fantastic. Well, you'll have to let me know what the brand of the pillow is. And then I'll attach it in the show notes because you people love to go to the show notes and then purchase you know, things that we things that we talked about. I know we're kind of approaching on our time here. And I'm sure you got patience. But I want to ask you uh, kind of one or two more questions here quickly on the rhinoplasty. You, you recently did an Instagram video uh, discussing a traditional rhinoplasty and a liquid rhinoplasty. And I think the liquid rhinoplasty seems very appealing to people because it's like, oh, wait, I don't have to go under surgery. And I, I'm going to have my nose look better, but maybe can you explain that a little bit and the risk associated? I have a couple posts on liquid rhinoplasty and because I would consider myself a rhinoplasty expert in general, 99.9% of the time, I think a patient is better off doing a true rhinoplasty. There are specific reasons and times in patients that I will say, okay, this makes more sense from a well-rounded reason that we should move forward with a filler. And those patients are usually, they're not healthy enough to undergo surgery. They don't have a week off in the next year to recover from surgery, or they want to try it out. They want to see, and I'm like, sure, let's try that out. These, these happen to be sometimes women that are going to be getting married, men that are getting married. They have small little things that are very specific that they want treated. And the only reason I'm that conservative, because it really is a lot of fun for patients, The only reason I'm conservative is because I find that there's very little education in most of my patients on the risks of filler. And so one of the reasons I post on it is so that there's somebody out there that does them that's also a source of education that there is a very small but real risk of either temporary or permanent blindness and similarly for for stroke. And the reason for that is because the blood vessels around the nose they network with those blood vessels that feed the eye in the front of the brain. And without fail, every patient that I tell that, because I find it it's a moral responsibility, in my opinion, they all are surprised to hear that. Because in my chapter, we just did a review on this, and it's probably higher than this because of reporting. I mean, I don't think there are a lot of providers, if they've had this happen, that are ecstatic about telling people about it. But it's in the 1 in 10,000. So it is a real concern, and it's one of the reasons I choose the specific filler that I do. So I don't put fat in the nose. I don't put permanent filler in the nose. I have a preferred filler that I use because of the properties. It doesn't take in a lot of water. So if somebody's had surgery before or they've had filler before, I'm really conservative, and I don't want it taking on water and then having any kind of other compression of other blood vessels. So it's a great option and it makes people very happy and it's very easy on them, but it's just important for me morally that I feel like my patients are educated, that it comes with some risks. And so that's all. What's the number one photo you get of the celebrity that people want to look like? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Really? I've had Kim Kardashian a couple times, which I mean, sure. Good for her. (laughs) And for men, Tom Brady. 
Oh, okay. Well, I'm not judging there. Those. <laughs> okay, last question. I know you're a plastic surgeon, but I'm sure you know skincare as well. If there's one facial product that people can't live without, what is it? My patients, you're saying? Yeah, or anybody. One face product. If you had to choose one face product for people to use, what would it be? I mean, put SPF has to be. I mean, it's so boring. SPF, SPF. But I really like this Elastin Restorative Complex as well. I think it's awesome. But those are my two. But get some SPF on your face. That's it. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Wick, I appreciate your time today. As always, I'll attach you know these products that we talked about in the show notes, all her information, her social media, where you can find her. If you have any questions, I'll also have my email in there. You can submit those too, and, and we can ask her, have her on again. So I appreciate everybody tuning in today. And as a reminder, please uh, rate, like, and uh, share the show. Thank you very much. 